0: It's exciting to know that uh, we have about 30 people, over 30 people getting baptized this coming weekend at our River Baptism, so we praise God for that. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us uh, here at Central Campus, as well as those joining us from our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. I also want to welcome our online viewers as well. This weekend, we are continuing our series from the book of 1 John. And we will be looking at the final chapter of this letter. And next weekend, God willing, I'll be wrapping up our teaching from this wonderful book of the Bible. But John wrote this letter to believers in the early church who were questioning their salvation. The early church faced numerous challenges that unsettled them. But the pagan Roman Empire was on the rise, resulting in the persecution of Christians and the martyrdom of several of the apostles. There were only a handful of people left who were direct eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, as most believers were second or third generation Christians. They were misunderstood by the society and mocked for their faith. And to make things worse, the church was infiltrated by false teachers who questioned the identity of Jesus and even the central tenets of the faith. As everything was falling apart, the first century Christians started questioning their salvation, their personal experience with Jesus. And they wondered if they had been sold a bill of goods. And the apostle John wrote this letter to bolster their confidence, to reassure Christians in their faith. So, repeatedly, you will see this all through this letter the emphasis on certainty. Why is this 2,000 year old document still relevant? Why are we studying it today? Because the world that we live in today is full of uncertainties, and many things can cause us to doubt our faith. Even believers today face the same dilemma Am I truly saved? Can I know for sure that I'm going to heaven? I tell you, I talk to Christians all the time who have difficulty in this area of assurance of their salvation. As we look into the passage of Scripture today, the Lord wants to remind us to be confident Christians who live not in a sea of uncertainty but base our lives on the bedrock of faith to ask us to stand right now as we read from 1 John chapter 5 verses 13 to 20. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Lord, we pray this morning that you will give us understanding. We lay all of our doubts at your feet. And I pray that you will replace those doubts with the certainty of the truth of your word. So we ask that, Lord, you will come and minister to us in the power of your spirit that each one of us here will be able to leave this place knowing that we have eternal life. So we give this time to you and we ask these things in the powerful and matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. You know, there is a... Popular age old Latin phrase that captures the thinking of our culture today. Ubi dubium, ibi libertas. Now, apart from being a tongue twister, that phrase means where there is doubt, there is freedom. Now, Abdu Murray, in his book Saving Truth, points out that today we as a culture have embraced confusion as a virtue and we shun anything to do with clarity. Any claim to assurance is seen as presumptuous. That's the reason wherever we turn today, there is uncertainty and doubt. It has been injected into our culture and into our individual lives. Uncertainty plagues our society and negatively impacts us whether we realize it or not. A Harvard professor named uh, Daniel Gilbert did an experiment to show the negative effects of uncertainties in our life. Now in this experiment, some subjects were told that they would be intensely shocked 20 times. And the researchers told a second group of people that they would receive three strong shocks and 17 mild ones. But they wouldn't know when the intense shocks would come. Now why would people volunteer for a study where they will be given a shock is beyond me. Anyway, the results, subjects in the second group sweated more and experienced faster heart rates. Now, what is the reason? Uncertainty caused their discomfort. They didn't know when the shocks would come, so it led to more stress. And Professor Gilbert summarized his study with these words. An uncertain future leaves us stranded in an unhappy present. With nothing to do but wait, our national gloom is real enough, but it isn't a matter of insufficient funds, it's a matter of insufficient certainty. That is a great picture of the culture that we live in today, deeply affected by insufficient certainty. When the future looks bleak, it evaporates all hope. But when we open the pages of the Bible, you see a completely different picture, one of deep certainty. Against the backdrop of the uncertainties of life, divine revelation offers a totally new paradigm of thinking. Believers are bound in assurance. Today, being certain may be considered an offense, but that shouldn't deter us in any way because we are called to live countercultural lives. In the scripture text that we read, a word that occurs multiple times is the word no. The word no appears 39 times in the first letter of John and seven times in this passage of scripture that we are looking at today. God wants us to know, not remain ignorant, not be uncertain, but be people of convictions that's based on the knowledge of God's word. The Christian faith is not wishful thinking, a pie in the sky or a figment of someone's imagination. It is real and we can know this without a shadow of a doubt. God has given his revelation in Jesus Christ and we, when we base our lives on this revelation, we will be confident Christians. So that is the first assurance our text offers us. We know we have eternal life. Now, In this passage, uh, John gives us the purpose statement of his letter, the reason for his writing. It's in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. You will find very similar words in the Gospel of John, also written by the Apostle John, which gives us the purpose statement of the Gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Now keep this in mind, the Gospel of John was written to primarily a non-Christian audience so that they will come to know that Jesus is the Christ and through him receive the gift of eternal life. But in contrast, John wrote this letter to Christian believers in order to bolster their faith, that they may know with certainty the hope of eternal life. John's letter brings this message of assurance. Eternal life is not something we are waiting for. It is not something we will receive when we die. It is something we have right now in our possession. That's a Christian certainty. Now, no other religion guarantees salvation. It is something yet to be decided. You will find out only in the future. When the scales will be brought out on the day of judgment, then the final decision will be made at that time And until that moment, you will have to keep your fingers crossed and hope for the best. Not so if you're a follower of Christ. A Christian is not someone who is hoping that they will somehow make it to heaven, but we know that we are heavenward bound. Christians don't have to be unsure about their destiny. There are no lingering doubts concerning this. For that moment when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, it's settled once and for all. We know that very moment that we enter into this eternal life. It becomes a present reality. Now, what is eternal life? People think it's living forever. Think about this. All of us will live forever, either in heaven or in hell. Eternal life is not just speaking about everlasting life, a life that goes on forever, but the emphasis is primarily on the quality of life. Eternal life is longer. It will never end. But it is also deeper, richer, and fuller, a life that abounds and overflows. Now, Jesus has not only changed our life's trajectory, but he has also brought a new quality to our life in the here and now. And when we die, it is gonna get better. We will enter into a fullness of life that we will never be able to experience this side of eternity. But all I wanna emphasize today is, as followers of Christ, we know that we have eternal life. It's our current possession. Now, someone may wonder, isn't it arrogant to make such a claim like that, that we know for sure that we are going to heaven? No, it is not arrogance to base our beliefs on the truth of God's word. It's precisely the right thing to do. What is arrogant and presumptuous would be to doubt the promises of God, to question what God has so clearly revealed in His word. And I tell you, Worldviews that don't offer this assurance create desperation in their followers of somehow making it to heaven through their own self-efforts. I was looking at a video clip circulating on the internet that comes from India. There's a prominent Hindu temple in the southern part of India where the idol of a Hindu god about nine feet tall is kept submerged under water. And they bring this idol out for public to view once every 40 years for about 48 days. And during those 48 days, people from all over India come to this temple to witness this sight. And this is happening right now. And the video showed throngs of people by the thousands making their way to this temple. Standing in long lineups for up to eight hours just to catch a little glimpse of that idol. And it resulted in a stampede and with several people dying. Not being able to regulate the crowds, they were shutting the gates of the temple. It was a heart-rending sight as people out of sheer desperation were trying to somehow make their way in. And the police were forcibly shutting the doors of the temple. And honestly, honestly, I wish I will have one opportunity to share with this crowd and bring a message of hope. I wish I could tell them lovingly, why are you going to a place where doors are being shut on your face? You don't have to prove your eagerness to God by going on a long, grueling pilgrimage, standing in lineups and being pushed around by people. You don't have to appease God with your sacrifices for the God who created you is eager to receive you because he loves you unconditionally. And that's why he stepped into this world through Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus. The door to heaven is wide open and the invitation is given to everyone to step in. This is a precious truth that has been entrusted to us. Christians know that we have eternal life and we are called to unashamedly share this hope with others around us. Let's move to the second assurance in our text. We know God hears our prayers. Here's something else we can know with confidence. When we come before God, God's presence, we come with boldness. And when we pray, God is attentive to our prayers. Look at verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. The word used for confidence in the original language literally means freedom of speech. A speech that is clear and direct with nothing to hide. So we have the freedom to come before the presence of God and express the feelings from our heart. Prayer is not about using pious words. It's having an honest chat with God. And when our text tells us that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. The word for hear denotes attentive listening. John uses the same word in his writings in other places to denote to understand. So our prayers are not just audible in God's ears. He listens carefully to every word that is spoken, and He understands us like no one else does. God Doesn't ignore anything that you have to say to him. As a pastor, I meet with many people who share their heart with me. And I try hard to be an active listener as people unload their frustrations or challenges or problems. But there are times, especially when the conversation prolongs, I hate to admit this, that I can zone out. My mind just starts to wander the person is going on and on and I'm thinking about what's my next sermon gonna be or even worse, what's for dinner tonight? It happens. But Here's an encouragement for you. Your pastor may zone out while you're speaking to him but God never will. He hangs on to every word that you have to say to him. Yeah, you give praise to God for that. What a blessing. And John says here in our text, we know we have what we asked of him. If you need any motivation to pray, here it is. When we pray, we have what we asked of him. It's in the present tense. I tell you it's not too hard to pray when God starts answering your prayers. What John is saying here is striking. Our petitions are granted at once. We have what we asked of him. That very moment when we ask, even though the results of the granting may be seen only in the future according to the time that is determined by God. That just in case, there's somebody here who gets excited and they hear this and says, how awesome is this? I always wanted a Ferrari. If I pray, will God give it to me? Well, there's clearly a condition that is attached to the granting of the requests. It's not just about praying hard or asking whatever we want, but it has to be according to God's will. Now, if you're someone sitting here who says, ah, that's a bummer, then clearly you have no understanding of God's will. Because the will of God is God's best for your life. It is in line with the plans that he has in mind for you. When God thought of you even before you came into existence, he had a dream plan for your life. God who sees everything from a higher vantage point personally crafted this plan for you. Now try as hard as you can. You cannot come up with something better than what God already has in mind for your life our prayers are answered in the affirmative provided they are in line with God's will, God's best for your life. Praying does not impose our will upon God nor bend His will to ours, but it aligns us with what God has in store for us. So the less we pray, the more self-centered we will be. And the more we pray, we remain steadfast right in the center of God's plan for your life. The truth is, when you are fully surrendered to God, it's a lot easier to say, not what I want, but what God wants for my life. Now in the context of prayer, John says something here that I want to touch on but not spend too much time, primarily because it is a difficult text and I don't want to divert you from the main message. But uh, this is what John writes in uh, verse 16. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. Well, the context here is Intercession. Prayer is not just about being preoccupied by our own selfish needs. A significant aspect of our prayer life is intercession, praying for the needs of others around us. Now what do we do when a fellow Christian falls into sin? A text is not referring to occasional sin, but it's talking about being caught in a sinful lifestyle. What do you do when a Christian brother or sister reverts back to a sinful lifestyle? The one thing we shouldn't be doing is to gossip. It's the most tempting thing to do and it happens all the time in churches. A Christian's failure is not a juicy story to be shared around, but it is a call to prayer and intercession. John is not even asking us to confront or judge, though there is a scriptural place for that. But in this text, John is urging us to pray for a Christian brother or sister who has fallen into a sinful lifestyle. For God would use our prayers as a means to give them life, to restore them back in their relationship with God. John is also talking about two kinds of sins one that does not lead to death, and the second one leads to death. What John is saying here is quite enigmatic. But it appears that John's readers understood what he was saying, so they didn't need any further explanation. But for us who are removed from the original context, and we don't have the background information, so we are only left to speculate here. Many interpretations have been offered on what's the sin that leads to death, and I don't have the time to address all of them. I'll make a couple of observations that you will find to be helpful. Clearly, the sin that leads to death is not referring to physical death. It is speaking of death in spiritual terms. Secondly, from the context of the letter, the sin that leads to death is probably the reference to the group of false teachers who once used to be part of the Christian community. They were part of the church, engaged in the life of the church, But they were now drawn away from the fellowship because of Gnostic teachings. And not just that, now they were vehemently trying to destroy the work of the church and draw others into this cult as well. And John refers to them in his letter as the Antichrist. So it is the sin of apostasy that John seems to be referring to as the sin that leads to death. It is the decision to renounce your faith in Jesus Christ. Now the people who were not genuine believers in the first place, who claimed merely an outward profession of faith in Christ, drifted away and started to live in opposition to him. And in doing so, they have placed themselves outside of the sphere of God's forgiveness. John is asking us to pray earnestly for Christians who are caught in sin any kind of sin. But he's not very eager to pray for the Antichrist who are bent on going their own way. This is like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus or Judas Iscariot, the disciple of Jesus. There's no indication of anybody praying or interceding for them for their hearts to change. Having said that, John is not forbidding us from praying for such people. It is not a total prohibition all he's saying is that is not the emphasis of this letter in this particular text where he's teaching about prayer. And here's a caution when we deal with a difficult Bible texts, we should not derive any principles from an obscure text unless it has support in other places in the Bible. I enough said, let's move to the third assurance. Here's the third assurance. The evil one cannot harm us. Here's verses uh, 18 and 19. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Look at how John views the world. This is a grim perspective but it's biblical. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. That is a strong statement. The evil one acts like God and exercises authority. We have seen some terrible rulers in history and the destructive impact of their regime. People like Hitler and Stalin caused a lot of damage in just a few years that they were in power. If that's what evil human rulers are capable of, imagine the power of the evil one who's called as the God of the world, who has been ruling for centuries. Can you think of the extent of damage as a result of centuries of rulership with one motto to steal, kill, and destroy? The world around us lies under the grasp of the evil one. The biblical picture is not one where the world is struggling under Satan's rule, trying to be set free. But they are sleeping unconscious, unaware, oblivious in the embrace of Satan. But The devil who is malicious and bent on destroying people cannot harm the Christians. This is yet another assurance, a certainty you can bank on. We are God's children, and Jesus himself shields us from the evil one. What that primarily means is, Satan cannot cause you to sin. John affirms this very clearly. Anyone born of God does not continue in sin. That is the very proof That you are born again. When a person continues to live a sinful lifestyle, when there are no changes in them, even after they they professed decision to follow Christ, then they're still serving Satan like the rest of the world. Their allegiance has not shifted. They have not come under the lordship of Christ. But this is the confidence we have as true followers of Christ. We don't belong to the enemy's camp anymore. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and now we are enlisted to fight in the Lord's army. And what that means is Satan is not our commander and has no authority over our lives. Satan may have the power to tempt, but he cannot cause you to sin. You can also be sure that Satan cannot have any hold in your life, he cannot control you because you are sealed by the blood of Jesus. Satan cannot thwart God's purposes for your life or steal your destiny. The one who is in us is stronger than the one who is in the world. Sometimes we give too much credit to the devil as Christians. We blame him for every small challenge of life from common colds to missed appointments. And I think Christians should stop glorifying the enemy for the enemy has no power over our life because Jesus, our Savior, has won a decisive victory. Through John's writings, We know several things for sure. God has made it plain. We know we have eternal life, that God hears our prayers, and the enemy has no power to harm us. When we believe these truths from the depth of our heart, when this becomes a personal conviction in our life, then we are marked by confidence. Our assurance is expressed in how we live our day-to-day lives. It gives us a new perspective to face anything life brings. This confidence frees us to be kingdom-minded people. Now, it is understandable that non-Christians sweat about their future, that they are anxious about the cares of life because their confidence has been shattered. They panic over the things that they cannot control. But we as Christians ought to be the most confident people in the entire planet. God wants us to be bold and courageous, positive in our outlook. And he loves it when we choose to base our life on his promises. Let me close with this. Fanny Crosby is one of the greatest hymn writers of our faith. Within a few weeks after her birth, she went blind because of a doctor's blunder. Despite her blindness, she became a prolific poet and hymn writer, writing over 8,000 songs. One of her most well-known beloved hymns is the one that we sang here at Central Campus this morning, Blessed Assurance, Jesus' is Mind this is how the first verse goes. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. God wants every single Christian to live each day of our lives with this blessed assurance. As heirs of salvation, we've already received a foretaste of glory. Washed in the blood of Jesus, we are secure from all harm. Eternal life has already begun when we placed our faith in Jesus and it will get grander and more beautiful when we see Jesus face to face someday. Praise be to God. I'm gonna ask all of us to stand as we come to an end. In an audience of this size, I know there are some people right here in this place, you struggle with the assurance of salvation. You wonder if it's your turn meet with Jesus what would he have to say to you? Would he accept you and receive you? I tell you this is life's most important question so I'm glad you are wrestling with it but when you base your life on the truth of God's revelation today you can leave this place with those doubts once and for all settled in your mind and you can receive this blessed assurance. You can say with all of us, I know I have eternal life. All you need to do is to give your life in the hands of Jesus. Believe that he died for you on the cross, that he has paid for your sins, and receive the free gift of eternal life that he offers us. And that very moment you step in to that eternal life, quality of your life changes. Jesus not only changes the trajectory of our life, but he infuses new quality in the here and now. And you can experience that even right now. So I'm going to ask all of us to just close our eyes. If you want a fresh assurance of salvation, if you want this promise to become personal to you, you raise your hands wherever you are so I can pray for you. Receive the assurance that you can leave this place knowing that you have eternal life. I see many hands. Here, keep your hands raised. I want to pray for you. Father, you see every hand lifted up right now. Thank you, God, for the free gift of salvation. None of us can earn it. We don't deserve it. But we thank you for this free gift that you have come into our lives, Lord Jesus. You came into this world That because of your atoning sacrifice, we know for sure that our sins have been forgiven as we confess them before you. So I pray for every hand raised, that you will take away any doubts that the enemy may want to sow in them and fill them with this assurance, this blessed assurance that they belong to Jesus that they have been sealed by your Spirit, washed in the blood of the Lamb, made clean, that they are righteous in the sight of God. And as this assurance becomes deep and personal in their life, let this be a testimony for your glory and honor that we will be ambassadors of this news, that we will not be prideful or arrogant, but in all humility we will share the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. We will have prayer partners available here. So if you raised your hand and you want to pray with somebody, I would encourage you to come forward and we will be delighted to pray with you. God bless you.